Listener Production. Remember this from last week. Allowing hundreds or thousands of Omicron infected people to fly straight into Perth from February 5 with no testing, no quarantine and no public health measures would cause a flood of COVID across our state. That was West Australian Premier Mark McGowan announcing that WA's border would not be reopening as planned on February 5th. Now, fast forward seven days and his worst fears seem to have come true anyway. We now have an outbreak and we're not going to be able to get it back under control. Uh, It's the Omicron outbreak, it's highly transmissible, Uh, it has some spread. We've managed to keep the spread down. Yeah, that was uh, McGowan there speaking on Australia Day. Now, yesterday, the state recorded 10 cases of coronavirus, taking the total to 131 active cases in the state. That might not sound like a lot to those of us who live in the other states and territories where COVID numbers are in their thousands, but you have to remember that WA has managed to stay more or less COVID-free throughout the entire pandemic, and that is thanks in part to McGowan's strong border policy. So, will the Omicron outbreak cause McGowan to do a double backflip on borders? There is clearly no plan, because otherwise we probably would have got a plan when he changed the plan last week. That is our briefing topic for today, Friday the 28th of January. I am Jan Fran. And I'm Tom Tilley, and here are today's headlines. Oh, lots of tennis news, starting with a lot of tennis news. Firstly, Ash Barty, what a hero she's into the Australian Open final. Making history, it's the first time an Aussie woman has done that in more than 40 years. Yeah, so this comes after she took down Madison Keys uh, in the semi last night in straight sets. She has not lost a set the whole tournament. This was 6-1, 6-3. I'm just happy that I get to play my best tennis here. I've done well before and, and now we have a chance to play for a title. It's, it's unreal. Yeah, she's absolutely killing it. She's going to play world number 27, Danielle Collins, tomorrow. Meanwhile, Dylan Alcott, look, he didn't manage to win his eighth Australian Open title. He went down to Sam Schroeder, 7-5, 6-love. To my community, thanks for always backing me. I hope I make you proud over the next 12 years, uh, 12 months, not 12 years. <laughs> As your Australian of the Year, but this is the last time I'll ever get to speak on this court. Thank you to every single person for changing my life. Oh, Dylan getting a bit emotional there. I mean, he could be Australian of the Year for 12 years. What do you reckon, Jan? (laughs) I don't think anybody would want to be Australian of the Year for 12 years. (laughs) That's a a long time. Hey, the other really exciting tennis news is that the special Ks, uh, that's Nick Kyrgios and Tanasi Kokonakis, um, have made the final of the Australian Open, and even better... Um, they're up against an Australian combo. So it's an all-Australian men's double final at the Australian Open, which is absolutely huge. It's the first all-Australian doubles final in 42 years. They're up against Matthew Ebden and Max Purcell. Now, good luck to them because the crowd for the special case is hectic and has uh, unnerved many an opponent so far. And the PM, Scott Morrison, is committing... $1 billion over the next nine years to the Great Barrier Reef. Now, this uh, massive commitment of money, it does come after UNESCO recommended that the reef be listed, quote-unquote, in danger last year. The government really did not want that to happen. It successfully lobbied against it. But it does mean that Scott Morrison has to report to UNESCO by next month and show the organisation exactly what he's been doing to protect the reef. 
Yeah, and the government's also hoping the funding injection will help shore up seats in central and northern Queensland with four marginal electorates in the area, Leichhardt, Herbert, Capricornia and Flynn. And more than half of the funding will go towards improving water quality and working with land managers to uh, remediate erosion, improve land conditions and reduce the runoff into the reef. So there's... Another political element to this, um, they're, they're really trying to, the coalition that is, is really trying to bolster their environmental cred because they've got a lot of very pro-climate change independents that are running in inner city seats right around the country in Queensland, in South Australia, in Victoria, in New South Wales. Um, and there are certain Liberal MPs that are in danger of being unseated um, in, in those places. So pledging that money over nine years and really eclipsing Labor's pledge, which is $163 million over four years, is the coalition saying, hey, we're with you. We support the environment. Please do not vote out our people come the election this year. And an important outback railway line has been smashed by rain. So this is the line between South Australia and Western Australia and the Northern Territory. It's been so badly damaged by rain that it won't be able to be fixed for another two weeks. Um, this rain damaged 400 kilometres of this Trans-Australian Railway. Yeah, so what that essentially means is that places in WA, Perth, um, and also places in the Northern Territory are going to be facing some supply shortages here. So Coles has already warned that some products could become temporarily unavailable. Uh, this is a one in a 200 year event. Mm. So we've seen more than 200 millimetres of rainfall in South Australia's north over the last week. That's, that's a lot of rain. Yeah, and there's more coming in Victoria today with hail, damaging winds and flash flooding expected to hit the CBD in Melbourne and the state's west. They've got their crews ready and on standby. They're well trained. They're ready to respond. And they're also assisting into our incident control centres as well to manage this incident. That's David Luchek from the SES. It has been a weird, wet summer. Yeah, I was reading somewhere that La Nina is uh, quite possibly passing, so oh. dissipating a little bit, which I thoroughly hope is the case because... It's turned out to be quite a wet summer, quite a wet indoor summer, yeah, which quite was a, not my plan. No, quite a boring indoor summer, as if we didn't need to be sort of isolated anymore. The rain has kept us indoors many, many times. And the Immunisation Advisory Group, aka ATAGI, is considering whether to expand the definition of fully vaxxed to mean three COVID jabs. Hopefully the uh, com confirmation of both ATAGI and National Cabinet will mean that everyone knows and understands that this is a three-dose project. Dan Andrews from Victoria. So this follows a meeting of National Cabinet where the definition of fully vaccinated was on the agenda. Um, more than 61% of Australians aged 70 years and over have had a booster in the last 12 weeks, but the rates are lagging more than experts would like. Booster rates in most states and territories are under 40%. So it does seem hard to get that message through. Um, they're looking at doing this in other countries too, aren't they, Jen? They are, yeah. I mean, Scotland's done it, for example. Uh, their, their definition of fully vaxxed is anyone with three doses um, of the vaccine. There's also considerations happening in France, um, Spain, the UK wants um, three doses to be considered fully vaxxed. Boris Johnson in indicated last year um, that that's what he wanted to happen as well. So we're by no means an outlier here. Well, it just got a lot harder to hear this classic song. So Spotify has removed all of Neil Young's music, that's Heart of Gold in case you missed it, um, after the 70s superstar told the streaming service they could have Joe Rogan or him 
because he says they're allowing Rogan to spread, quote, life-threatening COVID misinformation. Yeah, Spotify paid $100 million for Joe Rogan's podcast, so I'm not hugely surprised that they've refused to take it down. Um, They did say that they have detailed content policies in place and that they have removed over 20,000 podcast episodes related to COVID since the start of the pandemic. But no, keeping, keeping Joe Rogan up there, sorry, Neil, you're out. Yep, loads of misinformation that could stop people taking the vaccine and potentially die. But we'll keep it up. Um, Spotify have previously said in relation to Joe Rogan's Alex Jones interview, um, and this was their chief executive um, speaking to a British paper, said, we want creators to create. We're not looking to play a role in what they should say. So Neil Young's amazing catalogue of music has come down. Uh, YouTube? (laughs) Lots of misinformation and great music there as well. All right, in just a moment, we're taking you to WA. Western Australia is at a tipping point. It is in the midst of a growing coronavirus outbreak. Mmm, coronavirus. That might be a kind of a strange concept in WA, but it does seem like it might be there to stay now. Its borders still shut to the rest of the country. And what we know so far is that the Premier wants to get the state to 80 or 90% of the eligible population boosted. So he didn't give a specific figure, which sort of increases this sense that the borders shut indefinitely. The booster rates are only at 31% right now. So they're in a very interesting situation. The real question we're asking is whether a growing Omicron outbreak will mean a double backflip on the border policy because there'll be no point keeping it closed. So to get into that, we've got Jenna Clark joining us. She's the associate editor at the Australian newspaper and the host of the front page on Sky News. Jenna, thanks for joining us again. Are people accepting that they're likely at the start of a big Omicron wave in Western Australia, or is there still hope that it could peter out? Oh, look, crush and kill's always been this sort of edict for the past two years, Tom, but I think we're sort of coming to terms with the fact that COVID could finally be in WA, even though we've got our hard border up. There is a couple of community cases that are ticking away. We've got a couple of cluster spots, not only in the metro area, but in the south of WA as well. So I think the people of WA have come to terms with we're going to have to start living with COVID. Whether our decision makers, mainly the government, think that way remains to be seen. So Jenna, how are locals responding to the outbreak? Are you guys in lockdown? Is testing surging? Are people feeling stressed? What's the vibe there? I think people are feeling quite stressed and quite anxious. Uh, Like even the other day, I feel that we've even manifested our own type of like seismic shifts of the tectonic plates. We woke up on Tuesday morning to an earthquake just south of the state. Everyone was like, oh my God, was that McGowan bringing down the border? What was that? (laughs) Um, But it's quite odd because testing is not high at this point in time, considering we have a number of clusters on work sites in mine sites south of the city and also within the metro areas, specifically shopping centres. Testing isn't high, which is terrifying. People are getting vaccinated. We hit the 90% double dose for 12 plus this week, which is a fantastic achievement by the people of Western Australia. But we're sort of living in limbo because we now have to mask up whenever we're indoors in public. There is now buying limits in our supermarkets and to add insult to injury there was a flood across one of the main transport routes coming in by rail via South Australia this week so a lot of our shelves are pretty bare at this time and not only shelves bare we can't get workers both skilled and unskilled into the state. 
So, Jenna, I just want to talk about the health system in WA because the WA Secretary of the Australian Nurses Federation, mm, he mm. came out in support of the border delay, saying that WA's health system just wasn't ready, that they needed more time to prepare for a possible outbreak. What is mm. the deal with hospitals in <laughs> WA? Like, can they cope with a potentially growing number of cases? And if not, how come, given that they've had two years to prepare? Yeah, it's really interesting. I guess the, you look around the country and I think every health system is under a whole lot of strain at this point in time, but those health systems are under strain because of COVID, whereas it hasn't touched WA for two years now and they're still cancelling elective surgery. There's been an absolute cluster of drama behind the scenes when it comes to health for the past. And this is not just the Labor government that we see now. This is successive governments in WA, just really poor planning. Like they plunk brand new world-class hospitals in areas and suburbs, but they don't offer infrastructure around them and then they don't offer budgetary measures to ensure that they're sustainable. So we've got world-class research facilities at our Perth Children's Hospital, yet horrifically we saw a poor seven-year-old girl die in the ED department because of understaffing issues last year. And that's without COVID. So there's a lot of frustration specifically from the ANU and uh, behind the scenes from a number of frontline staff where Budgetary constraints basically mean they're shutting down beds and forcing a lot of nurses to do double shifts because they just don't know how things are going to cope. And there's so much uncertainty around what's going to be expected of them when COVID arrives. Mark Olsen-Smith, who is the head of the AMA, basically is echoing the calls of the Australian Nurses Union over here saying, we're not ready, we're not ready. Mm. But then you hear from leading intensive care and respiratory doctors in the private sector and they're saying, look, if not now, when? We kind of have to get moving and maybe this is what the government needs to get them to act on health in terms of a COVID outbreak. We'll get them to pay attention to what's actually required in the WA health system, both in the metro area and the regions. So if Omicron does take off there in WA, do you think the government's going to do a, a double backflip and then decide <laughs> to finally reopen the border? Yeah, it could be. We could, he, Mark McGowan could become the Simone Biles of Australia in the next couple of weeks because I think the, the lack of certainty around borders and around when people can sort of resume, not resume life as normal, because I think we've all resigned ourselves to the fact that things are going to change drastically when the border opens. I think it'll be, people just want certainty. And he took away that certainty in that late night press conference last week. So I think we're probably going to hear news uh, in the coming days around the change in restrictions for quarantine requirements, because at this point in time, there's still the 14-day isolation requirement coming in from interstate and international arrivals. I think a lot of people behind the scenes are lobbying pretty hard, both from the business point of view and the health point of view, saying it's just not sustainable, specifically for frontline health workers if they become exposed and test negative. I think we're going to see a seven-day quarantine requirement, which will sort of fall in line with, with National Cabinet. It's going to be really interesting when schools head back next week. We heard from the Education Minister this week that all children in year seven and over will be required to wear masks at all times. And then they are looking at if there is a significant community outbreak that kids as young as year three will then also have to be masked up when they head into the classroom. Okay, so it's causing a rethink on all of those policies about how you deal with it locally but, yeah. but what will it mean for the border at what point do you think this outbreak will have to get to to force mm. a full-blown reversal on the borders will it be yeah. 
a similar caseload to say South Australia looking at around 3,000 a day or yeah. will, you, will you wait till it gets to a New South Wales kind of scale of around 20,000 a day? It's kind of like osmosis. There's no point of a barrier yeah. there if it's the same on both sides. So at what point do they rethink? Totally. And that's what I think people wanted to hear, both the general public and the business community wanted to hear on Thursday night. Premier McGowan stood up and said, Feb 5 was a firm date. It's now not a firm date because of Omicron, because it is so transmissible. But everyone's sort of shaking their head going, well, clearly it's already here. So what's the point of the border? So mm. fingers crossed we're going we're gonna to get some clarity on the fact that is there a specific caseload of community spread before you just say, look, the border's done. We just have to get on with living with this now. Mm. So that will probably mean tighter restrictions. Public events will be scaled down. There could be more hurt for the hospitality industry and things like that. But I think there is a lot of pressure on the government, both now in the mainstream media and beyond, specifically really powerful lobby groups like we see on the front page of newspapers where the Masters Builders Association, they're 50,000 workers mm. short of trying to meet quotas on new home builds. People need certainty and people need people to be able to come over and work in Western Australia with the confidence that they can come and not be stranded in this state for two years. The time of East versus West really needs to stop and I think that public sentiment is definitely growing. But Jenna, I feel like quite a lot of people in WA support the hard border. McGowan is quite popular and that's been in large part due to his very harsh border policies over the course of the pandemic. What's the public sentiment on the border like in WA? When I talk about how people are just want certainty and things like that, I think there is still a massive, massive amount of support for McGowan's strong, and I say that in better commas, strong uh, line on COVID because the line that he took to the election, which saw him win, uh, you know, a historic majority in both houses of, of parliament over here, was I'll keep you safe and I'll keep you strong. I think a lot of people are definitely very worried about our elderly and our vulnerable, specific our kids that are yet to be vaccinated. And also there is this story that is bubbling away in the background that Indigenous communities are really, really vulnerable, not only to the fact that they're not vaccinated, but vaccine hesitancy. There's still 43% of West Australians' Indigenous population that aren't even vaccinated with the first dose. So to bring down the border and allow that into those communities would be absolutely catastrophic at this point in time. So I think we're going to get a plan, a safe transition plan, which will probably appease both sides. And I think we're probably going to see intrastate borders happen again, which means if you're in the metro area and there's an outbreak in Perth, means you can't travel outside of that area. But yeah, there is a lot of support for McGowan. And that's why I think that there is this undercurrent now of you have so much political capital, you have three years before another election, maybe it's time to be a little bit brave and come out from under the doona and give us a plan on how to move forward with COVID. Well, he's going to have to cross the border himself before February 26. Um, he's got to face a Sydney court. He's up against Clive Palmer, who's suing him for defamation yeah. for calling Palmer the enemy of West Australia. So how do you yep. see the case playing out? Is McGowan's so-called strong rhetoric coming back to bite him? And do you think coming here to Sydney and spending two weeks in quarantine on the way home might soften yeah. his attitude towards Look, the think- border policy? A lot of people are now joking that, you know, we could see an announcement as early as this week saying, hey, guys, so it turns out we're going to take down the border on Feb 26 um, because <laughs> it's too inconvenient for me to run the state from my spare room with my kids at home because, of course, the isolation requirements are basically untenable now because it used to just be come home and have your tests and, and isolate in a spare room with a spare bathroom. 
And now, as he announced last week in that press conference, you basically have to isolate solo unless otherwise everyone in your household, whether that could be your kids that are due back at school and your partner that has also has a job, they also have to isolate. It's just not sustainable. It's kind of like the health system. So maybe this little trip to Sydney for a date with a magistrate could be exactly what WA needs for <laughs> some forward thinking and innovation. He might also notice that we are surviving here in Sydney. Yeah, exactly. What was really galling, the new health minister, Amber Jade Sanderson, held a press conference over the weekend and basically said that the East Coast is in all but lockdown but name. And then, of course, the flurry mm. of social media posts with, you know, 65% crowds at the Australian Open in Melbourne and then Sydney kicking on and is basically just getting on with life, maybe with masks, which is exactly what we're doing now. So I think... They're just trying to buy some time to prepare. But again, I think the underlying narrative, even for people that agree with the way that he has handled it so far, is what have you guys been doing for the past two years? Clearly, there's no plan because otherwise we probably would have got a plan when he changed the plan last week. That was Jenna Clark there from the Perth Bureau of the Australian newspaper. Yeah, and I'll be very interested to see how Mark McGowan's trip to Sydney potentially changes his mind, whether, you know, shifts his worldview, finally getting out of WA during the pandemic. Well, he is due to be here in approximately a month. If there's one cool. thing I've learnt from COVID, it's you don't know what's going to happen in a month. So fingers crossed the situation over East is better and not worse. Fingers and toes. All right, that's it for your Monday to Friday briefing. Um, Jam will catch you next week. Uh, tomorrow, you have your weekend briefing. Jamila, who have you got on this week? This weekend, I have had a chat with Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Now, if you don't recognise those two names, then you will definitely recognise the name of their infamous podcast, Shameless. It is a celebrity and pop culture download that has literally taken this country and a lot of places overseas too by storm. I have sat down with them to talk about what makes their podcast so successful what gives to women in their early 20s the courage to go make their own thing and leave stable, secure media jobs to start something from scratch. And we also talk about what drives celebrity culture, how Australian celebrity culture is different to other countries. And it is one fascinating chat. Listener.